Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Policing, Incarceration, and Reform, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jeff Lamson, and I'm today's host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Matthew Gariglia about his new book, Police and the Empire City, Race and the Origins of Modern Policing in New York, which will be out November 17th with Duke University Press. Matthew Gariglia, welcome to the show. Hi. Yeah, Jeff, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here to talk about the book. Of course, we're excited to have you. Um, so I'm wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to uh, to studying the history of policing. Yeah, absolutely. The, the history of policing um, and my kind of journey with it came out of two places. The first was in grad school um, during a series of protests and, and urban uprisings over racialized police violence from you know 2012 through uh, 2020. And kind of seeing that and thinking about the long history of this and people engaging with the history of racial violence and, and wondering about the evolution of the police department as an institution. Um, and the other one was my like real interest in the history of of knowledge and knowledge production, and the and how the state learns really became a really motivating factor. Um, and this was you know reading uh, Carlo Ginzburg, the great European intellectual historians, uh, the Inquisitor as anthropologist, thinking about inquisitors as people who were building anthropological uh, knowledge about different groups of people, um, and then falling into the work of uh, James uh, C. Scott and thinking about how the state operates and how the state learns. And so putting these two together and thinking about police as knowledge producers, police who are on the ground and often the front line of the state in incredibly uh, multi-ethnic, multiracial, and multilingual cities, uh, and thinking about how they learned and how they built up bodies of knowledge about these people, even if that knowledge they accumulated was, you know, full of was stereotype um, and full of negative connotations, which then became the basis for the formation of criminal justice policy or uh, the the protocols by which the police departments governed. Fantastic. So one of the things that you mentioned there is the sort of contemporary context and discussions about what was happening with policing as a reason why you got interested in it in the first place. And I think that that's true for a lot of scholars, but a lot of the recent publications on policing tend to focus on the mid to late 20th century. And your book is stands out in that it's really focused on the origins of policing in the middle of the 19th century, going up through the first couple of decades of the 20th century. So we'll get into the argument and things in a moment. But before we do that, could you just talk to us a little bit about why it's so essential to understand this period in the history of policing and how it sort of fills a gap in the historiography. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think uh, maybe I'm going to be showing a little bit of my my Foucauldian roots on my sleeve, but I've always been really interested in kind of genealogy and the genealogies of policing. Uh, I've 
always been really interested in the genealogies of policing and a kind of history of the, of the presence, um, in a sense. And uh, what I was thinking about is, you know, where these police departments came from. Um, because if you look at the 20th century, uh, the mid 20th century and later where a lot of the historiography is, police are already leaning back on this kind of um, veneer of, of colorblindness. Um, there's this kind of uh, doing racialized policing through euphemism um, without kind of explicitly talking about race. And the thing that fascinated me so much about the progressive era um, is here is a period in which uh, governance and politics and policing um, were totally entwined with race, where police could not stop thinking about race. They could not stop building these bodies of knowledge about the relationship between race, ethnicity and crime. Um, and so I was thinking about how we got from one to the other uh, and the story of how policing went from being kind of uh, gangs of New York style wool, wool clad prize fighting pugilists to uh, a type of policing that considered itself scientific and mathematical and data driven uh, and, and was colorblind. How did those things, how did it become, go from one thing to the other? Um, and what role did race play in, in making that modern police department? And so I really found the origins of those questions uh, and, and the answers that I was looking for in this progressive era in which, in which racial, pro, uh, racial politics were so entwined with progressive politics, in which um, you know, racial science and eugenics was so entwined with thinking about crime, um, and where you know things like deportation and immigration restrictions and all these things, which thought about the um, the body politic of the United States and the racial caliber of people trying to enter the United States, um, really became uh, entwined with policing in the sense that people thought about deportation and immigration restrictions as a tool of crime fighting. Uh, and so all of these things kind of entwined empire, militarization, uh, all these things became uh, smashed together in the progressive era and really to me became uh, the the secret link in trying to understand the origins of what we see today as like the components of the modern police department. Excellent. So that's a really good segue to give us some background into the book's argument itself and what and what it's trying to do for our understanding of the history of policing. And so what I think might be a good starting point is that in the introduction, you discuss Raymond Fostick, a, a former NYPD administrator, and he is researching police and he defines the difficulty of U.S. policing to be the, quote, American problem. And you refer to this again throughout the book as you're as you're walking us through this history. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit more about what the American problem is or was, um, and then how that sort of situates your main argument uh, uh, in the book. Yeah, so Raymond Fosdick is one of these uh, fascinating characters, and if you really talk to almost any historian who studies the early 20th century period, they have somehow encountered Raymond Fosdick because he's one of these guys, several of the people in the book, who are just kind of everywhere because they're so seeped in you know, high-powered political connections and progressive politics. Uh, and Fosdick was an administrator of the NYPD. He then um, gets hooked up with an outfit called the Social Hygiene Bureau, which is kind of a, a think tank 
funded by the Rockefeller family. And he begins to research how to make police departments more effective. And to do this, he goes on a a multi-year tour of like 50 police departments in Europe to see how they function. And then a multi-year tour of 50, I think 72 police departments in the US to see how they function. And, And he calls the American problem the defining difficulty of American policing. And it is that uh, the American populace is so heterogeneous. How can police police a city where uh, the police officer does not speak the same languages, doesn't understand the customs, doesn't understand the histories these people are seeped in, uh, does not understand interpersonal communications or how communities are structured in some of these places. Uh, And so he really um, defines this problem very concisely. But the interesting thing is once you know that police are engaged in these questions, you see uh, the, a rearticulation of the American problem in a lot of different time periods. So there are people in 1904 who are saying, how do we build a police department can, that can police such a multiracial city? Uh, you have you have Fosdick, and then you have like something like the Wickersham Report after the Prohibition, which part of the problem they say about why they were so ineffective at policing um, illegal liquor distribution is because of the the multiracial and multi-ethnic populace of the United States that they couldn't infiltrate or understand or talk to all these different communities. Uh, and so it really gave me a great structure in understanding, um, okay, if one of the m- major engines of modernizing the police department in this period is trying to address these multiracial, multi-ethnic, and multilingual um, urban uh, industrial cities – then you can start to see the kind of intellectual threads and all the experiments, the things they try and fail, the the tools and the technologies they import to the city in order to find the proper way to address this. And so I would say, you know, police trying to deal with the quote unquote American problem as Fosdick articulated it becomes the the central um, the central motivation in in writing this book and in kind of trying to explore what the police departments were thinking. Yeah, it's such an interesting sort of perspective on uh, the relationship between policing and racialization or race making or or race uh, in this period, because they're not just sort of reflecting racial stereotypes, racial conceptions of the period, but they actually play an active role in shaping those things themselves, right? and so I wonder if you could speak a little bit about, if, especially in the beginning of the book, when you're talking about um, policing the Irish and policing the Germans and then Irish police and German police, um, there's this complicated relationship where they are reflecting racial constructions of the time period, but they're also shaping them in really important ways, both with regard to how the police are policing those groups of people, but then also how those groups of people are making up the police force itself. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, one thing I I kind of the tagline I've been using for this book is that, you know, race shaped policing, but also policing played an important part in shaping race uh, in New York and in in North America, because um, to be on the police force was kind of a a vote of confidence for your ability to assimilate into American life. Uh, And so, you know, in 1848, there's this massive um, influx of Irish and German immigrants from Europe, um, they are, you know, kind of considered w- white in their privilege because they are obviously uh, not 
you know, this is a period of, of slavery, not in New York State, but still in the United States. So there is a differentiation between, you know, you are clearly not um, a person eligible for chattel slavery as people of African descent are, but you're not quite Anglo-Saxon, you know, you're not quite one of us. So there is a, a racialization. And part of that is, is you know, presumed to be biological. Part of that is presumed to be criminal. Um but uh, but nonetheless, very early on, Irish people and Germans um, get brought onto the police force in exchange for votes. This is the era of, of Tammany Hall, of, you know, these very corrupt aldermen. People could be appointed by the police force by their local kind of alderman and ward boss. Um, and so there was a an, an exchange of these kind of plum, steady salaried government jobs on the police force in exchange for uh, your community voting for specific people. And so the because um, so many Irish and Germans came to uh, the Lower East Side and the lower half of Manhattan in the mid-19th century, um, quickly the police force uh, filled up with these people in exchange for their votes for the Democratic Party. Uh, and so this was you know, a, a vote of confidence um, in the assimilability assimil- of Germans and Irish people. Um, it was bring them into the project of racial management and racial governance in the city, because one of the first major tasks of the NYPD after 1850 is is, uh, enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act. So you have all these German-Irish officers being brought into the force who get to prove that they are different from African-Americans by forcibly, you know, by force enforcing slavery. And I found a lot of evidence of of, um, enslavers in the South writing to specific NYPD officers that they knew were sympathetic to slavery and asking them to go and patrol black neighborhoods to look for their one kind of self-emancipated individual who they were trying to have returned. Um, And so this gave an opportunity to a lot of recent immigrants to, uh, to, prove their whiteness and to prove their ability to to um, work with the American project. Yeah, awesome. And, and you do. So this question of sort of assimilation or assimilability um, is really interesting. And it's it's it, there's a broader historiography um, that you're contributing to regarding uh, how immigrant groups become white in this period. Um, and so. One of the things that you do incredibly well, though, is navigate very distinctive racial constructs as they relate to the police department. Um, So you have Italians and Germans and Irishmen, but also Chinese immigrants and black Americans. Um, And so I'm wondering if you could it's it's so complex to to parse out very distinctive human experiences there. Um, And so I'm wondering if you could. Tell us a little bit about the intellectual work that went into that, how, how you sort of navigated finding your way through all of these contradictions and, and different complexities about racial politics in this period as it related to policing. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And it, and it was it was very complicated. I mean, part of the fact was, um, you know, I relied a lot on, on some of the great um, thinkers on race and whiteness. I, you know, I went to Natalie Molina's work. Uh, I, you know, I was thinking a lot about race craft um, and some of these processes of, of racial scripts and, and how race is determined um, kind of in context 
with one another. Um, thought a lot about Simone Brown's work on surveillance and blackness, um, which helped me, you know, to think about um, how how police really played a role in whiteness, both by kind of enforcing these racial boundaries, by deciding who could be um, assimilable. Um, into American society. Uh, and, and they did this in part by violence. You have to look at violence, even though, you know, for a, a Jewish person in the Lower East Side to be, you know, batoned by an officer and, you know, a black New Yorker in the Tenderloin to be clubbed by an officer, um, on the ground, those experiences may be experienced fairly similarly. Um, but if you look at the motivations, the the thinking in the police department, the thinking of individual beat cops and how they understood race on their beats. Um, you you kind of tease out that there are there is an inclusive violence at play and an exclusive violence at play. Um, there is very explicit talk that there are some New Yorkers, uh, who, some immigrant New Yorkers, for whom crime is a a certain. Um, current status, but, but the, their criminality, their, their, um, insular communities that are kind of separate from the rest of New York are, are, don't always have to be that way. So you have, you have officers and you have police commissioners and you have social scientists saying that, you know, we can condition European immigrants to the American experience through violence. That when we baton um, an Italian person or a Jewish person or a Russian person, what we're doing them is we're teaching them how to be an American. We're teaching them the written and unwritten rules of American life. And this is in some ways a vote of confidence that that they are an intellectual problem to be solved, that we as police can contribute to solving that. We can make them more American uh, police in conjunction with things like settlement houses, things with public education and mandatory English classes that together in concert, the municipal government can make Americans and make white people out of these European immigrants. The same type of violence in other neighborhoods is very different. You know, um, I think Khalil Muhammad says that that um, criminality in black neighborhoods would have seemed less um, sensational, right? That it was a more understood as a historic concert, a, a historic constant. There's no way to to police your way or to train uh, your way out of or to educate your way necessarily out of what they believed was kind of biologically predisposed black criminality. Um, and, and of course, this was contested. There were activists at the time, there were, there were black intellectuals, there were white social scientists who, who very much believed in the idea of uplift and respectability politics, who were trying very hard to disprove some of these theories of, of you know, innate criminality. Um, but in terms of looking at the police department, um, like I said, the, the violence might have seemed consistent throughout a lot of different neighborhoods. Uh, and yet it was understood even inside the police department as being very different depending on where this violence is being meted out and who is doing it. Yeah. It, it reminds me of something that I was thinking about while reading about the barrel murder, which I'll let you talk about instead of me introducing it, but in 1903 and that a lot of it, it helps set off something of a, a panic about Italian crime. And as I was reading about it, I was thinking to myself that the, the New Yorkers were so terrified and, and so sort of um, obsessed about this, this problem of, of uh, Italian violence going on around them. And at the same time, lynching of black Americans is is at or or right around its peak in in the United States and so it 
that's I found myself sort of struck by that that contradiction about being so um, you know wrapped up in this one type of violence and so willing to ignore another type of violence uh, at the same time. Um, and of course, there was an anti-lynching movement, but um, I'm just sort of thinking about the broader public reaction here as they respond to like conceptions of, of criminality and violence that was going on around them. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing is there's a there's a sensational element to immigrant crime, whether it's China, in Chinatown or in Little Italy, in part because um, the, the people doing it seem so incomprehensible to a kind of um, the uh, a white, a, a Anglo, you know, Irish New York audience who reads the newspaper. And and, you know, they say things like like, you know, uh, Italians are medieval criminals who are incompatible with our Anglo-Saxon modern way of doing law enforcement. Or, you know, they, they say that they often describe Chinatown and Chinese people in general as kind of incomprehensible. Um, and so there's a sensationalism to the crime versus I think in in um, in everything I've read that the police have written, there's a kind of familiarity with black crime that does not rise to the level of like sensational panic, which would explain, you know, the, the kind of, um, incongruity between, you know, all the stuff that's being written about how, what do you do about immigrant crime? How do we understand these four people? And the fact that on the ground, um, you know, the, the, statistics from you know the early the first decades of the 20th century about who was being arrested and who was in prison you know black women are five times more likely to be imprisoned than irish women even though the the share of irish women are are quite larger um you know are are probably like something like 12 times larger than black women, maybe 30 times larger. I don't know. I, I don't have the statistics in front of me um, in the city uh, per capita. So so you have like a, a black people being arrested and imprisoned at a disproportionate rate, um, considering that, you know, in 1900, uh, black New Yorkers are only 2% of the population uh, at the same time as all this panic about immigrant crime. Um, and this familiarity is very interesting. This is like the kind of thing I'm talking about, about um, police as knowledge producers, um, that, you know, there is a, a familiarity and a body of knowledge for them to lean on that does not quite exist yet about all these new immigrants coming into the city. So it's a good segue into how they then went about learning about these new immigrants that came into the city. And there's an important connection here um, with empire. Uh, and so, you know, you use the phrase empire city in your title, but it's more than just a nickname for New York. It actually is a sort of one of the main uh, understandings of, of this history. Um, and so depending on somebody's familiarity with this field, they might be a little bit surprised to hear that a municipal police department was shaped in large part by imperialism and transnational histories. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about that imperial context um, and then and, uh, as well as how the tools used in that imperial context came back to, to help the police learn about these new immigrant communities they were sort of struggling to understand? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I often joke that to, to tell the history of policing in New York City, I accidentally had to tell a kind of very global story. Um, and in part, this started because I was looking at the individual police commissioners and their careers. And what I found was between about 1903 and 1920, almost every single police uh, NYPD police commissioner had 
spent time in the American Empire in one way or another. They had been in the Panama Canal Zone. They had been in the Philippines. They had, you know, run mining camps for U.S. corporations in Mexico. They had done all these different things. They had gone over to Europe to learn how uh, European empire had informed their metropoles police departments. Um, and so I couldn't avoid empire at some point. Um, but one of the interesting ways is um, uh, in these, these back-to-back police commissioners, uh, Francis Vinton Green, followed by uh, William McAdoo. Um, Green uh, was, he went to West Point. He was uh, sent uh, to the American West where he helped to map the U.S. Uh, Canadian border during the 1870s. So during so the height of some of the um, Indian wars out West and the U.S. conquest, uh, uh, the, you know, the forcible conquest of the Western half of the hemisphere. Um, and then he was sent as a U.S. military observer to the Franco-Prussian War, where he was stationed with the Russian military. Um, and then he eventually found his way uh, as a general in the Philippines during the um, siege of Manila. And then finally, as a um a governor of sorts and to reorganize the municipal police department of Havana in Cuba. So we had this kind of tour of the U S empire over the span of 20 years. And then finally in 1903, he becomes police commissioner. Um, and he sees that, um, detectives are having trouble infiltrating places. Uh, he sees that, you know, sending in, um, native New York detectives into saloons and gambling houses that cater mostly to tourists is not going to fly with the New York born and raised, you know, uh, proprietors of these places. And so he writes to friends in Ohio and Indiana, and he gets them to send like kind of young Midwestern detectives to come infiltrate these places. Um, he starts relying more and more heavily on uh, the first generation of Italian detectives in the city. Um, and and it's really interesting because, you know, he seems to have learned a lot of, you know, a lot of the lessons of empire. Because if you look at uh, the U.S. occupation of the Philippines, they're asking the exact same questions that that uh, Francis Fenton Green is and his successor, William McAdoo, are in New York, which is how do white Americans police people who do not speak the same language, who are so unfamiliar to uh, to soldiers, uh, to occupiers. And so these same questions are being asked simultaneously, both in the Philippines and in New York. Um, and they come to the same solution in both, which is native policing. So the Philippine constabulary is formed where they recruit all of these people from the Philippines to form this centralized police force. They often, uh, deploy people based on their, um, their ethnicity and their language skills, because obviously the Philippines is a very multi-ethnic archipelago. They deploy them to specific regions where they think they will be the most useful. Um, and McAdoo, who is part of the, um, the, the, uh, the commission um, in, in the Philippines to kind of look at how the best govern the, 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 uh, the Philippines. And, and one of the conclusions of this report that McAdoo is part of is, you know, police, uh, Americans don't make the best policemen, especially when the people they are policing are of a different ethnic group than them. And so McAdoo is part of making this re- report in the Philippines. He comes back in 1904. He becomes uh, the police commissioner of New York. And the two things he does during his uh, year 
as in his post, is he founds the German squad, he founds the Italian squad, and he recruits the first Chinese-American detective. And so, you know, clearly all these lessons about how to infiltrate these insular groups when the occupying force there don't speak the same language, um, are, are these conversations are happening simultaneously both in the U.S. empire and in very immigrant-heavy cities like New York. Excellent. <clears throat> One of the other thing, one of the other ways that it seems like uh, there's sort of a changing in the makeup of policing is actually pressure coming from communities in the United States. And so in chapter six, you talk about um, black activists who are seeking to diversify the police force, um, which is both an interesting historical topic and sort of a topical contemporary question as well. Um, and so could you tell us a little bit about the the history of Samuel Battle being hired as the first black officer. Um, and then, and then also perhaps the, the process that got him there in the first place, because I think that the role of activists, uh, and the broader community in shaping policing is something that's sort of an important part of this history that, that isn't always emphasized, but you do very well here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so what's so interesting about this is, um, you know, in in neighborhoods like in in Chinatown in Little Italy, um, there is a a middle class kind of respectability politics um, in which you know business owners in Chinatown in Little Italy are are pushing for. Um, members of their own community to put on the police force. And this is, you know, kind of imagined to be sort of like um, Irish and, and Germans in previous generations, which is they want buy into the American project. They want, an you know, to be included in uh, and therefore to like, you know, achieve some kind of social and racial mobility. Um, and so they want in on the police force. But uh, they don't have to push too hard because the NYPD is so desperate for people to understand the languages and the cultures of these immigrant communities. They are often desperate to recruit, um, you know, informants and then and then officers and detectives who speak these languages. Um, and so you have like, um, for instance, some uh, uh, Warren Charles, who's the first Chinese NYPD officer, um, you have commissioners begging him to be deployed in Chinatown because they want him there so badly. And he actually refuses, which is a really interesting story. Um, and so you have this history by 1911, when the first black NYPD officer is appointed, you have this like at least decade long history of the NYPD going out and recruiting um, immigrant officers to serve in their own communities because they understand it better. Uh, this is not the case uh, in black communities in New York, in part because of what I said, because the, the white NYPD feels they have a handle on black neighborhoods, that it is more familiar to them. Um, and so it really takes a lot of activism to desegregate the NYPD. Um, and the community takes this up, up onto themselves for a number of reasons. The first is, you know, after the riot of 1900, um, in which uh, police and white residents just absolutely tear through San Juan Hill, which is um, one of the largest majority black neighborhoods in the city in 1900. Um, and they, they kill a lot of people and they, and they, you know, assault just pedestrians and people riding in streetcars. Um, and, and this kind of, in some ways, 
begins the move out of San Juan Hill toward Harlem, out of uh, that more contentious multiracial neighborhood. Um, but there's there's the riot of 1900 and a lot of cons- other consecutive summers of racial violence and mob violence in the city uh, where um, – you know, people like Reverend Reverdy Ransom, who is a uh, a reverend at a, a black church in in Manhattan's West Side, start to really preach about how integrating the police force and having met more black police officers will curb police brutality in black neighborhoods. And this was uh, he could point to a lot of other cities like Chicago and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh who had had a longer history of black uh, police on their force um, and who supposedly had gotten good results in terms of um, the ability to kind of curb some of the uh, really random police violence in these neighborhoods. Uh, and, and there was a, a respectability element as well. They thought that not only um, would more black police mean safer neighborhoods in terms of from police violence, but that uh, people from these neighborhoods would have a better sense of who the criminals are, uh, how to get to them, where they hung out. And there's a sense that, you know, black police would could, you know, like like Irish police or Italian police kind of lead the, the community into um, more respectable, uh, more respectability, into more uh, social standing because they could they could help to elevate the whole community by kind of weeding out the kind of lawless elements um, among them. Um, and and the NYPD, uh, you know, heard this activism, but it took many many years of of protesting of very powerful members of the black community to uh, of the the black press to talk about this until finally um there was a kind of test case in the form of samuel battle who uh was born in north carolina and moved to new york he was a porter at grand central terminal so he you know wore a uniform he carried bags he was a big strong person uh, and so like size came into play here the respectability of the job uh, that he had before becoming an nypd officer played a role here um and even then the nypd initially had failed him because they said that he had a bad heart in a medical exam um and and then you know the the black community rallied uh, against this bad decision. Um, I, I think like you know a a kind of wealthy progressive uh, white doctor um, gave him a reexamination and passed him with a clear bill of health. And finally, in 1911, um, he was appointed as the first black member of the NYPD, sent uh, at first to San Juan Hill, which was still, as I said, one of the um, densest black neighborhoods in the city and then eventually was sent on to Harlem. And even though, you know, the NYPD didn't understand it in a way where uh, they needed Samuel Battle to understand the black community like they needed Italian detectives to understand the Italian community, um, they, they kind of betray that a little bit in some of the things they've written. Um, so, so, for instance, Samuel Battle himself says, you know, I felt like the NYPD needed needed me more than I needed them because I was the only black officer in a precinct of mostly black residents and an all white police force. So they really needed me to understand the community. Um, and even in fact, 
when uh, the New York Age, the most popular black newspaper, was advocating for the appointment of a black officer, they kept saying, we need our own black Lieutenant Petrosino. And uh, Lieutenant Joseph Petrosino was the first Italian detectives. So they were they were channeling this long history of immigrant detectives in order to make the argument that the black community needed something like that as well. So one of the things that's interesting to think about here is the extent to which officers patrolling their own communities, black officers patrolling black communities, et cetera, is a reform that solves some of the problems with policing. Uh, it's something that you hear a lot today, um, and it's something that uh, these activists at the time uh, were clearly advocating for. How does this history help us understand the relationship between an officer's identity, their role as an officer, and the people that they are actively policing? Yeah, that's that's a really fascinating question because one of the things I really kind of discovered as I um, researched from the 19th century on is kind of the emergence of th- the identity of police – um, uh, police as a kind of insular social world. Um, and part of why, where I think this comes from, the, the concept of a blue life, if you will, which I think in some ways is kind of actually a useful analytical term, um, is, you know, you know, if you go back to the mid-19th century where you have, um, you know, Irish Catholic police officers who are fighting, who are putting down Irish Catholic rioters in the streets. And if you look at the visual depictions of these events, you will see the police are are tall and strong looking and they're, you know, in like immaculate, unwrinkled uniforms. And the Irish rioters are depicted as like small and hunched and often like quite literally very ape-like. Um, and so you can see, even though uh, demographically speaking, statistically speaking, these people were you know, kin. They were probably maybe neighbors, maybe cousins, maybe brothers, who knows. Um, they are depicted very differently. And so you start to see um, this this emergence of an insularity in which, you know, people accuse uh, cops of, of selling out their kin, of selling out their neighborhoods, of, of you know, um, in, in some cases you have um, Irish Catholic people in New York uh, kind of conjuring the the specter of British imperialism in the form now of their Irish brethren who are now uh, American police officers kind of brutalizing their neighborhoods. And so you have this kind of insular social world in which, you know, there's there's not a ton of evidence per se that um, the officers recruited to police their own neighborhoods are any more or less brutal than, you know, white officers in other neighborhoods. In part because, you know, if you look at like people like the Italian squad, um, they were primarily sent in just to police Italian people. So the sometimes the only people they had access to be violent to were other Italians. Um, and so, um, you know, even though in the appointment of Samuel Blatt Battle, the first black and white PD officer, there was a lot of hope that, um, he would be uh, the first domino to fall that would like, you know, end in the recruitment of a lot more black officers and having black communities policed as much as possible by black officers and would curb some of this brutality. Um, 
ultimately, I don't, I don't know if it ever really worked out that way because, you know, even in cities that had a much higher proportion of black officers, you know, the black communities are still angry about police brutality. Yeah. So, so the question becomes in some ways, it's this question of good, what good policing is, which is something that you mentioned at multiple points in the book. Um, and it, at, at one point, it was the development of these ethnic squads. Um, and eventually, it gets good policing becomes more closely tied to new technologies and new scientific techniques. Um, so can you talk about now sort of what happened in this period to reshape American policing? And, and should we understand it as kind of a clear breaking point toward like, quote unquote, modern policing, as some would have us think of it? Um, and and then to what extent it's a continuation of earlier policing models? Yeah, I mean, this is where we get into tricky because, you know, everything is happening in policing all of the time. You know, there are always people who think policing should be more scientific. And, you know, you have like the, the Sherlock Holmes model of like the brilliant scientist detective, which goes back to, you know, the 19th century. You have, you have um, people like Thomas Burns who invents the uh, rogues gallery who puts up these big photographs of repeat offenders on the wall so they could be easily recognized. So you, you have people who are invested in kind of information and surveillance and technologies of policing earlier on, even at a period when policing is kind of at its height of, you know, um, Victorian prize fighting manliness. Um, and, and yet, you know, there's this, there is this slow transition that happens, um, at the end of the first decade of the 20th century where, you know, you have this ethnic model of policing where the department is recruiting immigrant officers to police their own neighborhoods. And this really kind of phases out. And I think it phases out for a number of reasons. Um, one is which, you know, it stops being incredibly effective in part because the officers are all incredibly recognizable. You know, if you have a hundred guys policing a little Italy or an Italian community of New York that has hundreds of thousands of people in it, eventually they're all going to become pretty well known and pretty recognizable. And so their effectiveness is going to wane a little bit. Um, You also have a a growing call for immigration restrictions, which is, you know, if we're not going to be able to solve uh, immigrant crime on the ground, we should we should close the stream of new immigrants into the city, and we should use deportation as a tool to remove those immigrant criminals who are already in the city. And you don't necessarily need Italian detectives to deport somebody. Um, another thing is, you know, this is the the rise of the white slave panic and the idea that immigrant men. Are uh, immigrant and black men are responsible for the ex- sexual exploitation of white women, and so there is a growing distrust of uh, uh, Italian immigrant men. I think even on the police force, um, Theodore Bingham, the NYPD commissioner, who eventually kind of um, closes the Italian squad, uh, is notoriously distrustful of immigrant men and wrote a lot about the white slave panic at that period and specifically uh, about how much of it he attributed to Italian and Jewish men. Um, And so for all these reasons, kind of the ethnic squad model slowly dissolves. There's less of an emphasis on recruiting immigrant men and people with language abilities. Um, And at the same time, you have um, the importation of technologies from Europe, uh, which is considered the cutting edge of policing. So you have things like 
like criminal files and filing cabinets, which before this, you know, um, the uh, police departments kind of kept records in big leather bound books that you'd have a little tab and then you'd open up to look and you'd have to sift through to look for arrest records, which were not incredibly um, useful or easy to organize. Um, you have things like, you know, psychological terms like modus operandi, like ideas that, that people have a model of crime that they will go to again and again and again. Um, you have uh, the emergence of things like um, first the Bertolone method, which is a way of, of finding out if a person you've arrested is a repeat offender by taking measurements on their body. So for instance, if you arrest somebody for arson, you can measure the distance between their two eyes and you could go to your filing cabinet and you could look for people with one inch between their two eyes. And then you could uh, sub-search for people with an MO of arson. And, and theoretically, by sifting through these different categories, you could find out if the person you just arrested was a repeat offender. Um, this obviously was pretty cumbersome because no two people took measurements exactly the same way. You needed people to sit very still to take measurements. Um, and this was eventually replaced by fingerprinting, which became the primary model. Fingerprinting was considered like almost magic at the time, not just because, you know, you could, one person has the same set of fingerprints. So if they were arrested in um, Detroit, the Detroit police could send over fingerprints to New York. And if, you know, if, if it was a photograph, a person could change their appearance, they could grow a mustache, they could grow a beard, but a fingerprint would never change. So you could cross-reference that with the fingerprint of the person you've arrested, but also because it kind of dissolved time. Um, in law enforcement, where police could enter a crime scene a month later, um, and they could find a fingerprint there, and they could solve a crime a month later, when before you needed like you know somebody to drop their pocket watch on the scene, or you needed a witness. And if you didn't have those two things, a, a crime could not be solved unless they like blabbed about it later, they confessed to an informant or something. So fingerprints really kind of dissolved time um, for law enforcement. Um, and so all these new innovative uh, technologies of policing come over from Europe. They come over from empire where they had been incubated. Um, and they were brought over by police officers who were routinely being sent to Europe to go find what the cutting edge technologies of policing were and bring them back to the United States. Um, and that's not to say that like fingerprinting, for instance, is any less uh, colonial than the ethnic squad, you know, which descends from like the Philippine constabulary because fingerprinting itself, which came from London to the United States via the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, which is where it was introduced to police in the United States with great fanfare. But the, the uh, London officers who had used it and had, had been training with it, they had incubated it from the U.S. empire in India where um, it had proven specifically uh, very useful for, again, this colonial context where there were white English uh, occupiers and um, the Indian occupied. And, and when you had an occupying force that couldn't speak the same language, that didn't understand the culture, you didn't need to be able to speak to anybody or understand them or communicate with them effectively if a fingerprint gave you all you needed. And so it was deemed particularly useful and this type of um, context where there was like a racial discrepancy between the police and the police. So fingerprinting, even though it was this new modern technology and it usurped older, also colonial models of policing, it also was a product of empire. 
Yeah, and it's such an interesting point because I think that most would look at something like the emergence of fingerprinting and say, well, of course they adopted that. It was inevitable that they would take on these new technologies. Um, and they seem uh, as though they are something like fingerprinting these technologies. They seem less value laden. But as you just pointed out, they actually, we can think of them in a similar way to ethnic squads as emerging from something like a colonial context. So it, it sort of speaks to a bigger relationship between policing and the technologies that they adopt. So I wonder if you want to speak to that anymore in sort of a specific or a broader sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's this great um, story that I think illustrates a lot and it's, and it's kind of a humorous story. It's kind of uh, framed as a joke in the newspaper where I saw it, which was uh, the police court on the Lower East Side, which handled majority immigrant crimes moves into a new building and they put, you know, 20 years of immigrant criminal records in the file of this courthouse. And they learn very quickly that this, this new building has a rat problem. And there are a bunch of rats who are crawling through the file boxes and they're destroying the files. Um, and so they figure out what they're going to do is they put down ink pads and they put down pads of paper and the rats walk through the ink, and then they walk through the paper, and they're able to use these uh, footprints to decipher that there are four specific rats that they identify through different paw prints. Um, and and they have the court's fingerprinting experts say, you know, uh, this is the, the magic of the science of fingerprinting. Like, now that we've identified them, they assigned each of the rats a name. They created mock like uh, arrest summons for each of the rats. And he says, now that we now that we have the fingerprints, now that we know their identities, the rest will be easy. Um, and there was this real kind of understanding of that that you know the science will make policing much more easier because part of the problem um, in a kind of more anonymized world is knowing who people are. Um, you know, it was it was not easy in the early 20th century, in the late 19th century to uh, hear that one person had committed a crime and then go out and find that person. Um, and so things like having a, a file for every individual in the city, which contained fingerprints, which contained facial measurements, which contained, you know, family records, medical records, uh, arrest records, military records, um, photographs of that person, all of their known addresses. Um, you know, this made it a lot easier for police to understand the city in a way that was navigable, that it was legible to them in a way that they thought was be much more easy to kind of control and subordinate than a, a lawless city in which there was a lot of anonymity to living in the city. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. That's a great answer. And I, the, the story about the rats is such a fascinating one. And you've got uh, unbelievably sort of entertaining stories throughout this. Um, like the there's the New York City diet squads, which I thought was so interesting. There's there's a lot of funny little anecdotes in here. And you do a fantastic job of of having these personal narratives and, and these sort of intimate details in here that make it a great read. I'm wondering if any of them stand out to you as particular favorites, uh, anybody's personal narrative or some of those like interesting quirks uh, that emerged as, as you worked your way through this history. Wow. Yeah. There, there's a, a lot of really good stories. I mean, some of them are kind of, as you know, because I'm talking a lot about police violence, some of the, the personal narratives are, are kind of traumatic um, to, to read and to write about. Um, but some of them are, are just like, so 
odd and interesting and convey such a way of how the NYPD thinks. I think I think the Diet Squad is a really good one where, you know, starting in the in the last decade of the 19th century, there's this kind of obsession with um, what they call their term is fat police, right? That that they're like that that bodies conveyed um morals they conveyed effectiveness and so there was this idea there's this debate over like are overweight police officers brutal or are they jolly you know are they more likely to use their gun because they're not going to chase you and they can't catch up with you and there are all these debates about the the morals and the ethics of of overweight officers um, and what that conveyed to the public. And this kind of culminated in the NYPD diet squad in 1914, which is they took um, 14, uh, quote unquote, husky bachelors, as they called them, and they put them on a strict diet. They they had their um, their diets and their exercise overseen by a professor, by a number of professors, which also goes into this like the emerging relationship between uh, higher education and policing, which is really interesting. Um, and, and so they, they want to like, you know, condition men, both their bodies and their minds, because this is the period of, you know, increased training and education for officers. This is the period of, you know, introducing gymnasiums to uh, precincts. Um, and so, you know, trying to condition, rebuild these men from the ground up. There's a quote that I use in the book that police are raw materials that they use during this time. Um, and so they create this squad of men and they oversee their diets um, and they and they want them to lose weight and they give them, I think the diet is monetary based. They have to eat like three meals a day off 25 cents alone or something like that. Um, and, and in part, um, it's about you know, training officers, but it was also about the lead up to World War One. It's a lot about um, preparing the people in New York City for the inevitability of rationing, that they could still eat the calories they needed in a day uh, on less money and with less resources. Um, and it was also about thinking about this new concept of a calorie, you know, that like, no matter how hungry or not hungry you felt, uh, that there is this, this science that you can't see and you can't understand that will actually tell you actually you're satiated. Um, and this is kind of an ongoing theme where like, you know, they often told officers they weren't chewing right or they weren't standing right. And they would, they would show police officers x-rays of their own feet. And they would say, like, listen, you might think you're standing right, but this magic science tells us that you're not standing right. Like, don't trust your body. Trust trust the science. Um, and so they really were kind of rebuilding officers from the ground up, from the most basic kind of human um, actions like chewing and standing and walking. Um, they, were, they were trying to rebuild them and teach them how to use their bodies properly. And part of that was kind of weight conditioning and exercise and, and what and how they were eating. Yeah, it's such a fascinating story. Um, so I think that we've taken up quite a bit of your time here, Matt. And so I, I want to finish up by asking what you're working on next and, and sort of where you're heading with your next project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the this the end of this project where you know I really got fascinated by the emergence of kind of files and information and the ability for the government to organize and collect, you know, through you know what I would categorize as surveillance of the collection of information about individuals or about the general populace and how to organize it and then how to store vast amounts of it. 
Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really thinking for this next book, which is going to be, uh, I hope, uh, a history of state power and information and racial management um, from the end of the Civil War, um, where the government has its first real chance to collect a huge amount of information, which is pension records for Civil War veterans. And they have to build this brand new style of building specifically to house the amount of information they want it to house. Um, and it will begin there and hopefully, I think, go through all the information required to do information, uh, to do immigration management and like the vast amount of bureaucracy and paperwork needed to like uphold something like Chinese exclusion. Um, up through uh, kind of the rise of the FBI as being a pre-digital way of hoarding incredible quantities of information, including its centralized fingerprint index, which was housed in, you know, multiple uh, airplane hangars outside of Washington, D.C. at some point, uh, and hopefully go all the way up through um, digital gang databases and predictive policing. And, And in a digital age, uh, what it means for the government to have such a vast quantity of information on individuals. And part of it, I hope to be um, an eye towards activism. You know, people have always understood, I think, government information to be kind of vulnerable, in part because for a vast amount of our history, it was paper, it was flammable. And then up to now, where you have things like ransomware, which can render huge amounts of information um, untouchable by the government. And so, you know, there have been a lot of points in history where activists have really targeted this information knowing its vulnerability. So you have this legal movement in the early 20th century where um, people want to uh, launch legal challenges to expunge um, the retention of mugshots and fingerprinting records if a person is acquitted of a crime. Why should police have to hold on to my fingerprints if I'm eventually acquitted? So there's this big legal movement to get um, some of those records expunged. Um, There are a number of instances where um, activists have, have quite literally sought to use fire to destroy files like draft records during the Vietnam War. Um, and the counterside of that is there are a lot of moments in history when the government's own files have burned. Um, all of the records in the administrative building on Angel Island, uh, which was you know the, the big major immigration station uh, in, in San Francisco Bay, which handled a lot of Chinese exclusion, um, all of those records burnt up in a fire in 1945. Um, and then, um, you know, other moments like, you know, the, the CIA MK ultra files on mind control, all of those files were burned at some point as well. So, um, thinking about the vulnerability of information and both when activists have targeted this information and also when governments have destroyed their own information and kind of what does that mean for, uh, state power, um, because they can manage their information and make it unfindable in the future. Wow. Well, it sounds like an incredible project and such an important one and, and a, a new and sort of original take on um, a topic of, of state power and surveillance that I know a lot of folks are interested in and there's a pretty robust scholarship on. Um, so it's fantastic. All right. I want to say thanks, Matt, for taking the time. We really appreciate it here at New Books Network. Um, and we'll look forward to your book coming out this November. Thank you very much for having me.